back in front of the cameras for the first time since 2012. The Jogcast, with Alex Clark, Monique Kenson, Andy May, Sarah Nakuda, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, June 2016, Extra Edition. Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Jogcast. I'm Charlie, and I'm joined in the studio today by Monique and Andy. Hi. Hi. And Andy's a newcomer to the microphone, so he's been working behind the scenes for us for a, for a while now. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and what you've been doing for the Jogcast? Sure. Uh, so in my day job, uh, I work in experimental cosmology. Um, we work on some cosmic microwave background experiments to try and measure basically the residual radiation from the Big Bang. Um, for the Jogcast, I've been working on the new Planck video, which we're going to be talking about a little bit later, which is for the Royal Society Summer Exhibition. Mm, so we'll come to that a little bit later on. And you're a master student at the moment. I am uh, starting a PhD in September, so, so you'll be here for here a long for time, three years. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, we'll have you uh, around for uh, a few more episodes in the future. Then, yeah, hopefully so. Okay. And in the show this time, Monique talks to Professor James Dunlop about galaxy evolution, and Joe Zunz answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Alex Clark interviews another newcomer to JBCA, Minnie Mao, in this month's Job Bite. Hello there, uh, and welcome to the Jod Bite. I'm Alex Clark, and today I'm interviewing Minnie Mao, who's joined us at JBCA. So, hi, Minnie. Hi, Minnie. Hi. <laughs> so, uh, hi, Alex. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, tell So, who are you? Why are you here? Tell us. Uh... Um. So, my name's Minnie, and I have recently started here at the University of Manchester as a Marie Curie Fellow in an Escapes group. Um, but I'm actually based out at Jodrell Bank Observatory because it's really pretty down there. Cool. So you've joined us in the last few months, right? You're relatively right. Familiar. So I started here at the beginning of May. And so mm-hmm. I've been here for, I guess, six weeks now, trying to understand the British accent. Are you enjoying it? Very much so. Yeah. I, w- I was a little bit nervous coming into this country because I knew it was a very busy country. I moved over from uh-huh. the Netherlands. My previous job was at Jive. And I lived in a little town called Ley that's so small that all the streets are called Ley. And there were like 250 people. So I was trying to find a similarly small town to live in um, near Jodrell Bank. And the closest town was Goose Tree, but it had 2,500 people. So I was a little concerned, but it turns out to be a really nice little town. It's very nice. And the wildlife here is stunning. Yesterday on my bike ride home, I saw one pheasant, four (laughs) squirrels, and three bunnies. Fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Great stuff. Um, so you just mentioned that you were at Jive previously in the Netherlands. Right. Do you, uh, if we backtrack even more, where have you been? Right. So I did my PhD at the University of Tasmania, which is the big island of Australia, um, and finished in at the end of 2012 when I moved over to NRAO Socorro. So I lived in Socorro for um, three years, just under three years, and then moved to the Netherlands. So my mum always jokes that, you know, my if you plot the kind of population density and where I live, really right now I should be living in a town of about one. Because <laughs> I went from Silly Melbourne, Hobart, Hobart, Socorro, Socorro, <laughs> Ley, and Goose Street. So I'm, yeah. I've come up. There's an upturn okay, in okay. the... <laughs> very nice, very nice. So, yeah. Um, cool. So what do you study? What, what are you researching? Is the next question. Oh, I'm really proud of the title of my project. Um, mm. Anna actually came up with this. My project is called Here Be Spiral Dragons. <laughs> so it's a play on Here Be Dragons because we're searching the unknown. But the sources that I'm studying are actually called Spiral Dragons, um, which is um, basically a spiral galaxy that hosts a dragon. A, a literal dragon. 
<laughs> Charmander. Um, no, so Dragon is an acronym actually coined by Patty Leahy, who's here mm. in, the, in the department, and um, I'm sure you guys all know Patty. Yeah. Uh, well, that was one of the reasons I wanted to come here. I was really excited about meeting Patty and working with Patty. So Dragon is as ostensibly an acronym for Double Radio Source Associated with Galactic Nucleus. Um, but And I'm quoting Patty's website here. However, this expansion in no way constitutes a definition. Um, basically, to me, a dragon is anything that's kind of over a few tens of kiloparsecs and has the classic double-lobed radio structure that we're used to seeing associated with, you know, supermassive active black holes. So these things in, in themselves are interesting, but I'm looking at dragons that are hosted by spiral galaxies. And this is particularly exciting because empirically, so observationally, dragons have only ever been seen to be hosted by elliptical galaxies. And this makes sense. To be fair, we don't have a very good understanding of how dragons are triggered or radio jets are triggered, but leading galaxy formation models suggest you need to have a major merger, kind of pump heaps and heaps of stuff onto the black hole, turns it on, blasts out these, you know, fairly large, um, you know, billions and billions of kilometers long radio jets and lobes. And of course, if you have a major merger, you're going to disrupt any spiral structure. So at least following conventional galaxy formation models, it's pretty well impossible to have a spiral galaxy hosting a dragon, a double-lobe radio structure. Mm -hmm. And I think in 1998, uh, Michael Ledlow was the first person to discover a spiral galaxy, 0313-192, phone number, that hosted a 300 kiloparsec radio source. And this is phenomenal. I've actually got a lot of data right now with very long baseline interferometry to figure out if it's a chance alignment. Yeah, so these things, basically spiral dragons cannot host double-lobe radio sources um, following leading galaxy formation theories, and yet we see them. And right. I'm actually really excited about the source that we found last year, two years ago now. I had a summer student looking for more of these things. So at the time, there were only, I think, two or three examples, and none of them are really good examples. And so my student got data from Galaxy Zoo, which is a citizen scientist project where citizen scientists cla uh, mor morphologically classify galaxies, and took a sample of spiral galaxies and cross-matched it with archival radio data. And we found one spiral dragon. And this thing is a spiral galaxy. So this is the first time that we've gone from the optical direction. We found the spiral galaxy. It's got these, in this case, 90 kiloparsec radio lobes, beautiful structure. But this is the first face-on spiral galaxy that hosts a dragon. And um, this is the best example we have yet of a so-called grand design spiral. You know, very clear host, very beautiful um, arms. Mm -hmm. And the... Galaxy Zoo citizen scientists agree, I think it's like 98% or 96% of the citizen scientists agree that it's spiral and on its mm. clockwise, anti-clockwise structure. So that was really cool. And I'm really proud because it was a summer student that really discovered, made that very discovery. Nice. So that was really very neat. Nice. I'm talking too much. Sorry. No, it was great. It's very interesting. <laughs> so it's really quite a novel project or something. We think so. So basically what I, I mean, short stories, I don't know how these things are formed. We have yep. some ideas. All of them seem to be in kind of denser than field environments but not yeah. super clusters like yeah. they're kind of in poor clusters or rich groups um so we're wondering whether it could be do to do with the density of the mm. you know intergalactic medium and right now what i'm focused on looking at is a lot of vlbi very long baseline interferometry data to see if there's something special with the black hole basically and the other thing is spiral galaxies tend to have a lot more gas than elliptical galaxies, so it'd be really interesting mm. to see if the jets actually interact with the gas in the yeah, host galaxy. Yeah. 
cool. So, so you mentioned students, uh, and that brings us on nicely to something you've been running here. Um, well, yeah, a group of us in Anna's group just finished running the inaugural Rabid School. It's the radio astronomy boot camp I did. Um, you have to imagine it in Yoda's voice. Right. But basically, the term time is finished for the University of Manchester students, and we're really lucky to have a number of these excited undergrads working with us as summer students over the course of six weeks throughout the summer break. They're all starting at vaguely different times, and when speaking with the other supervisors, we realized that we're all going to have to teach them from scratch a lot of the things, because their radio astronomy course doesn't start until, I think, about fourth year. And so we had this idea of running a boot camp to over two days and kind of just giving them a taste of showing them what Linux looks like. Basic programming, we did a Python course that was very well received. Um, that was Justin Bray. Um, we showed them a little bit of apes and CASA. And we took them out to the telescope, which they really mm. enjoyed. And we also had some public lectures by um, Professor Tim and Professor Ralph. So it went down really well. So the students really loved going out to yeah. site and just connecting with the telescope. So yeah. I'm really, really happy with that. Yeah. And I'm excited that my summer student starts. Yeah, I was at the uh, the history talks by Ralph. Yeah, and right. uh, they were so cool. And Tim. Yeah, they were so they were really good. Yeah. So the the history of Jodrell Bank is really quite astounding. It's, it's... I haven't found too much online about that. Are there resources, websites, or is Professor Tim kind of working on it? Yeah, I'm not actually sure actually, if there's anything official. I mean, so so it's as as you were saying, it's listed as a heritage site. It's a Grade One listed building, and it's one of the only sort of scientific structures. But yeah, it, I think there's work in progress because they're talking about sort of collecting all the thoughts from these older generations who have, you know, who who were talking to Lovell and the people right. back in the forties and fifties who we can't talk to now, but they're, a lot of their, yeah, sort of phrases and the things and the stories they have documenting them is... is have you been for a walk around fun. the site? Yeah, yeah. There's so much stuff lying around. It's really interesting. Mm, yeah. And um, did I tell you about our hedgehog detection project? No, please do. <laughs> so... I'm really excited about the UK. I grew up in Australia. I, but your wildlife here is just insane. Um, you know, <laughs> kangaroos and possums are pedestrian, but like, you know, squirrels are the coolest things ever and foxes. And so I've never seen a hedgehog. And a few weeks ago, like the second week that I was in the UK, I signed myself up for a hedgehog detection workshop because it's a hedgehog detection workshop. Okay. And um, basically we m made these little hedgehog detection tunnels. Then we can see if hedgehogs have passed through them. And I, I, I live in a flat, so I can't very well put one in front of my house. Yeah. So we asked the health, uh, Mike Anderson, if we could probably put some hedgehog detection tunnels out on site. And he said yes. Nice. So we've been putting some out and actually took the students out yesterday to show them. And I said this to Professor Tim, and he's just like, well, I suppose that's okay so long as you're not putting, you know, the exact coordinates of things on the internet. And I'm like, oh, that's exactly what I've been doing so I don't lose exactly where I've put the oh, right. hedgehog detection tunnels. So I've taken that all offline. Um, is, it, is it, like, secret? It's just well, it's tunnel, just right? there's so, so much old stuff around, and hedgehogs mm. tend to, like, kind of piles of stuff to hide in. So my tunnels tend to be where there's lots of stuff. Ah. Yeah, so t Tim's worried that people will come in and want to see, you know, if I've got corners, they'll see all the stuff because I have photos and things oh, like that. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So I made it private. But um, if you're interested, I'll show you later. Cool. I'm really cool. proud of it. Right. Um, we haven't detected any hedgehogs, but we have detected, if not rats, then water voles. Right. The footprints look quite similar. But we... so, it's, so I was going to say, how do you detect them? By their footprints? Is... Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, so you have a weatherproofy sort of triangle tunnel. Yeah. And then you put um, food in the middle. We have yeah. hedgehog food and cat food. And then you put 
oil-based ink, so that's not bad for the animals, mm -hmm. kind of on some masking tape so it doesn't get absorbed by the thing. Then you have a piece of white paper on the outsides. And the hedgehog will walk over, get his little feet dirty, eat something, and he'll walk away and yeah. make little footprints. Very nice. So I, I just think cool. it is really cool. Um, cool. Yeah, I love the site. The site is so beautiful. There's just so much to see. Every day I go for a little ramble. Yeah. Yeah, I really yeah. like There's it. There's lots to discover there. Okay, we'll we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for talking to us, Minnie. Thank you for having me. Very interesting. And I'm sure uh, you'll be joining us again soon on the Jodcast in one form or another. Hopefully. Yeah. This was fun. Thank you yeah. very much, Alex. Cheers. Thanks very much. Thanks for that, Minnie. And now over to Monique, who's interviewing Professor James Dunlop from the Royal Observatory Edinburgh about galaxy evolution. Hi, I'm here with Professor James Dunlop from the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. Hi. Hello. And welcome to the Jodcast. So you just gave a talk for our department. Could you start off by giving us a brief overview of what your research interests are? Sure. So I guess I'm interested in cosmological evolution. Once upon a time, mainly of black holes and AGN, but these days galaxies. So almost all of my research is focused these days on galaxy evolution, right from just after the Big Bang and the first galaxies formed to the present day. And what are the kind of major questions you're trying to answer in that area, like galaxy evolution? So there's basic questions like when and how did the first galaxies form? Um, why was there an era in the universe about three billion years after the Big Bang, which seemed to be the climatic era of galaxy formation, and what shut down that formation thereafter? Because most massive galaxies now are red and dead. And also things like, when was the dust produced in galaxies? And we're interested in the dust because the dust contains the elements of life, things like silicon, carbon, iron. All these elements that wouldn't have been there after the Big Bang were manufactured in the first generations of stars. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not interested in galaxy evolution per se, mm -hmm. in a way you're, you're tracing the history of the periodic table of elements. Mm -hmm. And so most people would be interested in that at some level, I think. Mm, it's tracing it right back to its own. Yeah, and one of the interesting things is we're now back about 95% of the age of the universe and we're still mm. seeing galaxies, so we haven't got to the first galaxies right, and the wow. first stars. Uh, and that in some ways is a surprise. So there's a relatively small window now where we know, if you look a bit back for, a bit further back in time, there should be no galaxies. We're still not there yet. So as far as we've been able to look, we still find galaxies. Fewer of them and smaller galaxies, as you'd expect, but still, mm -hmm. we still have not seen the first stars and galaxies. So you mentioned that there seems to have been this spike in galaxy formation and that most of the massive galaxies we see were created quite a long time ago. Yes. Are there any possible explanations for that? Well, I think people understand why the biggest galaxies started forming earliest because mm. the way gravity works, the first galaxies to form, they would have been dwarf galaxies, but they would have been in over-dense regions of the universe and then they would have merged. And to make today's most massive elliptical galaxies, they would have started forming early. Perhaps more of a mystery as to why they're not still forming stars. So it's not that they started forming early, it's the fact that they shut down some time about 10 billion years ago and somehow, despite being at the centre of big gravitational potential wells, mm. where you'd think they could suck in more gas, they stopped forming stars. At some level they said, right, we're done, we've had enough, uh, we're already big galaxies and we won't bother making any more stars. So that's one mystery that's still not properly understood. There are lots of ideas... But it's the shutdown rather than the early start that's the problem for these objects. So it's those red and dead galaxies, they typically are found in like galaxy clusters and things like that? Yeah, and again, that's what you'd expect. The rich areas where you maybe had a slight over-density in the early universe, that would be the progenitor of today's most dense, spectacularly dense regions. So they would be the clusters. 
Uh, and it may be there is something about the cluster environment that helps heat up the gas that stops that falling in to form more stars. That's certainly one avenue that people are looking at. So you mentioned that you originally started off studying black holes and AGN, mm. and you've now kind of moved more to focus onto galaxies. Yeah. What's prompted that move? Practicalities, I suppose. Um, I'm old enough now to remember that high range of objects used to mean quasars and radio galaxies. If you go back, I suppose, just over 20 years, then any galaxy known over what we say is a redshift of one, which means looking back in time to the first half of the university's history, they were all radio galaxies or quasars that had been discovered through the emission produced by their black holes. And that was simply because we didn't have sensitive enough instruments to see normal starlight from normal galaxies at that era. And then in 1996, two things happened around that same time. One was that the Hubble Space Telescope got fixed after its initial fiasco with its bogus optics. And people started doing deep imaging in the optical, which is rest frame ultraviolet, and seeing galaxies out to radius of two or three. So starting to see about 10 billion years back in time. And then at the same time, people knew a lot of star formation was obscured by dust. But it's really hard making sensitive telescopes to see what is relatively cool emission from warm dust. So this is looking at, at objects emitting at a few tens of Kelvin. And obviously you have to cool down the detectors and that's a lot colder than the environment. And so about that same time there was a telescope called the James Clark Maxwell Telescope, still working in Hawaii, which got fitted with the first detector sensitive enough to see dust-obscured star formation from high ridge of galaxies. So within a few years, as papers about 1996, 97, 98, where all the first detections of optically detected galaxies are coming from Hubble, and all the first detections of dust-obscured galaxies in the higher edge of universe are coming from SCUBA and the James Clark Maxwell Telescope. And so this is a nice time to be talking about this again, because it's almost the 20th anniversary of what was really a, primarily a technological revolution, both in the optical and in the millimetre Today you talked a little bit about your recent work with ALMA looking at the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Could mm -hmm. you tell us a bit more about that? So it's a kind of coming of age for millimetre, submillimetre astronomy. So I mentioned before SCUBA and the James Clark Maxwell Telescope, but these are, I mean, it's still doing good work, but it's a single dish telescope. It's a big dish. It's 15 metres diameter. But just the physics of light means that if you're looking at long wavelengths or microwaves, you can't make a very sharp image if you have a single telescope of only 15 metre diameter. You have to get an array of telescopes. And that's been doable at radio wavelengths for a long time, but ALMA is the first really effective big array that can image in millimetre wavelengths. With the Hubble Space Telescope, you've been able to make really sharp, high-quality images, the things that people are used to seeing all the posters from. But it used to be if you looked at a millimetre image of the universe, it looked really rubbish, or kind of blobs of indiscreet emission in the sky. And essentially, it is a heat map, but you needed the Atacama Large Millimetre Array, this ALMA telescope, to make images of the same quality at millimetre wavelengths to match what Hubble can see in the optical. And so this is the dawn of a new era where we're not com comparing really sharp, pristine images with Hubble with big, vague blobs in the millimetre. Finally, you can make an image at rather similar resolutions and ask, you know, in the same field, this deep field that we talked about today, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, how much dust-obscured star formation is there overall cosmic history in that patch of sky? And how much UV-visible star formation is there in the same patch of sky? And in a simple-minded way, add it up and just see as a function of time, looking back, how much star formation there is at each epoch. Basically, the dust absorbs a lot of the UV light from young stars, because stars form in dense clouds. But it 
energy conservation means it must come out again. It comes out in the far infrared, which gets redshifted to the millimetre. So instead of now trying to create for what we might be missing, you just look at the two complementary wavelengths and you complete the census of star formation. So it's almost like the technology is now sufficiently advanced that you can do what you would always have wanted to do in a simple-minded way and just add up the obscured star formation and the unobscured star formation and, and complete the census. Without having to make lots of assumptions. Without having to kind of create and guess for what you might be missing. You just simply say, right, I know I'm I'm missing a lot of in the UV, so let's just look at the wavelength where it's got to come back out and you get a nice complete picture. Can you also learn something more by comparing what you see in the UV and what you see from the obscured emission? One of the messages of today's talk was that the high-mass galaxies, which basically also form the most stars, really struggle to get any more of that light out in the UV. There's something about being a high-mass galaxy that means you're very dusty. Or there's something about star formation that once you get beyond a certain intensity of star formation, somehow no more UV light can get out and almost all of the light gets reprocessed. So whereas if you go to very low-mass galaxies, if you look at the UV light, you might have to correct it by a factor of two to make up for what you're missing. For the high-mass galaxies, Basically, the UV is almost irrelevant, or you'd have to correct it in some huge extrapolation by a factor of 200 or so. So that maybe tells us something about chemical evolution, that the high-mass galaxies have already been through a lot of cycles of star formation and the interstellar medium is already enriched in metals and dust. Or it just may be something about the life cycle of star formation, that to see in the UV, you basically need relatively clean sight lines into the galaxy. And maybe once you've a, a galaxy full of molecular clouds all forming stars, there's almost no sight lines left and it all comes out in the reprocessed form. And it's a bit like cosmology, where we know in cosmology how much dark matter there is, how much dark energy is, but we don't know why. In galaxy evolution, we're now getting a fairly complete set of patterns. We know how star formation depends on stellar mass of the galaxy. We know how much is obscured and how much is unobscured, and there's clear trends there. But the astrophysics of understanding why these trends are so clear is not understood yet. I don't know if this is an impossible question, but do you know how you can get at those astrophysical questions? Well, simulations have moved on a lot as well. Mm. And one of the weaknesses of simulations often is that Simulations have been quite successful in predicting a lot about galaxies nowadays, but often when they try to work out how to put the dust into the simulations, they just kind of throw some in according to some simple recipe. So now we're getting a much clearer picture of how the dust properties of galaxies depend on stellar mass, for example, and on epoch, redshift. People will be able to try putting in one prescription for dust, and then we already know that some of the simulations using certain prescriptions are just miles out in this. And so... You can have a simulation that you think is right in a pure sense if there was no dust in the universe. And then you can try now putting in different recipes for how the dust is made and distributed around the galaxies and see which one of these recipes works closest to reality. And having got that recipe right, then you can ask the question, does the simulation match reality? So I think before the simulator has been able to get away with, and now we throw dust into all our galaxies and make them a bit obscured. And now that's not going to work anymore. They actually have to produce the trends with things like stellar mass and star formation rate and explain why the trends are so clear because they're quite unambiguous now. So it could be quite an exciting time for simulations. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. And also, you know, people have to explain why the dust seems to form quite efficiently. You know, high rates of galaxies, people used to think it was quite hard to form dust, but it seems easy to form dust in high mass galaxies. Mm -hmm. And so that needs to be understood as well. 
So you mentioned that you're hoping to get more time on Alma to do an even deeper mm. um, image, is that right? So what are you hoping that you'll learn from that? Well, we know that there's lots of sources that we could have detected if our image was just a few times deeper. And we know that because if you stack on the positions of known sources from the Hubble optical imaging, individually they can't be detected. So, you know, as I was saying today, we basically detect about 20 sources. But then there's thousands of galaxies in the Hubble altitude field known from the Hubble imaging. And if you stack on the fainter sources, you can see on average that they are detected in the millimetre of the ALMA image. So they do have dusty star formation. And and not only that, you can estimate how bright they are. So we already know if we could just get a few times deeper that instead of just 20 sources, we'd have 100 sources. And so we'd like to... Stacks are all very well, but they tell you average properties rather than source-by-source source properties. And so it's just a... It sounds extravagant to go from 20 hours to 120 hours, but there's lots of telescopes, more mature telescopes than ALMA, that give out thousands of hours of time-to-large mm. projects. So this is what ALMA needs to do as it matures as, as a facility. It needs to give not to lots of programs, but a few programs need a few hundred hours to do what only ALMA can do and make an impact in this field. ALMA is the only telescope that has any chance of seeing the dust-obscured star formation from these objects. And so we'd like to do that. And then going beyond that, you could argue that it would be a bit of a law of diminishing returns because as we get to very low-mass galaxies, then the evidence is they're not very dusty. So I think there's a place for ALMA to push a bit deeper and finish the job of connecting the obscured and the unobscured universes. And then it'll be time to do something different with ALMA, which is probably exploit its other great power, which is very high-resolution imaging. And so that by then, if we'd 100 sources detected in the ultra-deep field, rather than just keeping on doing the population census, we would then individually pick them off at much higher resolution and see the structure of the dust in these objects. Mm. And so that would be the beginning of a new era where ALMA will study these galaxies in detail, having itself done the job of uncovering the things in the first place for study. And would you be looking to answer different questions once you were like, taking it on a galaxy-by-galaxy basis? Because we have this very high-quality resolution in the rest frame ultraviolet from Hubble already. So then you really could push ALMA to match the very high resolution in Hubble and ask things like, is the UV coming out of the same patches of the galaxies as, as where the dust obscured star formation? Or are they completely complementary? Where we see the UV is that where we don't see the dust obscured star formation? Because it could be either way. There could be star forming regions where we get a bit of UV and a bit of far infrared. Or it could simply be that the two things are exact opposites. It's known that the UV star formation is very clumpy in these objects. We don't know really whether that's because the star formation is very clumpy or whether these windows into the galaxy that the UV comes out is very narrow, very narrow sight lines. So we need to remove that bias. And so if you end up getting just as clumpy star formation in the ALMA images, then that would be interesting. Equally, if the ALMA imaging is much smoother, then we'll have been seen to get a very biased view of star formation in these galaxies from the Hubble imaging because it will simply have been those lucky sight lines that we happen to see a bit deeper into the galaxy and it won't have so much physical meaning. Okay, so I help you to in- interpret those Hubble images. Yeah, and, and that'll be important for the simulators because at the moment the simulators are working hard to make these clumps, but if these clumps are an artificial artefact mm-hmm. of the biased Hubble view of these objects, then that's a complete red herring. And it's always hard to know as a simulator whether or not the things you're getting are realistic or not. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a favourite moan of simulators that the observers have to get the answer right, but you know, it's a two-way street. As the observers push things on, comes a point where the simulators can't legitimately ignore the observations anymore. Yeah. And it needs to be remembered that even your favourite simulator would admit that this is an observational-led field. Mm. 
Uh, none of the simulations predicted these heavily dust-obscured star-forming galaxies that you see in the submillimeter surveys. They were completely absent. People didn't think you would get objects forming hundreds or thousands of solar masses per year. Or if they did, they actually predicted that they would be incredibly UV-luminous. They somehow failed to realise understandably, that these things would already have had previous cycles of stars sufficient to enrich the interstellar medium and mean it was already metal-rich and therefore dusty. You know, their picture of a massive star-forming galaxy was a pristine hydrogen-helium object at very high redshift, quite extended pancake structure, forming thousands of solar masses per year, but all visible in the UV and Lyman alpha, not what the universe is actually like. It sounds like if you were trying to make those predictions from simulations, you would need kind of a scale and resolution of simulation that we don't really have at the moment. Is that right? Well, there are multi-scale simulations. A lot of the challenge of the simulators now is to... There's certainly good simulations at the individual kind of Milky Way level. Mm. Although if you give them, you know, the same starting conditions, so the same dark matter halo mass that we know the Milky Way has different simulators produce very different versions of the Milky Way, depending on what recipes for the complexities of feedback from star forming. One of the main changes in the field over the last five years, I would say, is that people now realise that star formation is quite inefficient. Most of the gas that falls into a galaxy heads back out of the galaxy. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. About only, I don't know, about 20% of the gas that falls into a galaxy forms into stars. Most of the rest is either bounced out by the supernova explosions and the energy inject, the winds and things, or reprocessed and then re-ejected in heavily processed form in the form of supernova remnants. And so you get very different looking galaxies from the simulations depending on how much you turn up the feedback knob, if you like. And in fact, that explains a bunch of mysteries, like why are there so many metals in intergalactic medium in between the galaxies is already known to be quite metal-rich, and that's because a lot of that gas has been in galaxies and come back out. It just recycles through. So this whole cycle needs to be properly understood, and it's sort of thought that in low-mass galaxies, which don't have big potential wells, they struggle to form stars because they make some stars and then they go bang, supernova, and lots of energy is injected, and that throws out most of the gas that's there to form the next generation of stars. And then at the other end of the mass spectrum, the big galaxies seem to have these supermassive black holes in the middle, which provide their own kind of energy feedback through quasar activity. And so it seems that at low masses and at high masses, star formation is suppressed. And it's actually at intermediate masses, coincidentally or otherwise where the Milky Way is, that star formation is most efficient. And so our Milky Way is in this kind of sweet spot of kind of 100 billion solar masses of stars where obviously the feedback's still there, but the gravitational pull is big enough to make decent-sized galaxies where Mm -hmm. a fair amount of the gas is turned into stars. So understanding all of that is part of the campaign because people understand what the mass function of the dark matter should look like and the galaxy mass function doesn't look like that. It's got less at low mass and less at high mass and then a kind of knee where where galaxies seem to be at kind of a sweet spot of doing a good job of forming stars, and that's where the Milky Way is. Oh, I didn't realise that. Well, um, thank you for that. Uh, okay. Very interesting, and hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. Okay. Thanks for that, Monique. So we thought we'd mention, yet again, our listener survey. We've already had quite a few of you filling it out. If you haven't, please do. It's going to help us improve the Jodcast over the next couple of years. We'll have the link, as always, in the show notes. On the topic of jocasty things, I also wanted to apologise again for the lateness of the June episode. 
we had a, a few disasters to do with the weather and our computers shutting down and new computers not having the right software and all sorts of things. But we've got it back up and running now almost perfectly. And hopefully we won't be quite as late next month. And now time for the odds and ends. Andy, what have you got for us this month? So as I mentioned very briefly earlier, lots of us here at Manchester work on the Planck spacecraft, which was a European Space Agency mission to measure the cosmic microwave background. This is basically the leftover radiation from the Big Bang. And by measuring the intensity and the polarisation of this, we can basically understand more about the very earliest moments of the universe. So here at the Jodcast, we've been working really hard with colleagues from Cambridge, Cardiff, Imperial, Oxford and Sussex to put together a video about Planck for the Royal Society Summer Exhibition this year. Been going on for, what, maybe two months? This Yeah, and the rest. It's been yeah. a big effort. but uh, It's a large really... team as well. It's yeah. <laughs> um, been having a lot of fun doing it, actually. Yeah, definitely. You've been one of the integral parts of the video editing side of things. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's been a bit of an effort, but it's, it's good. We're, uh, we're really happy with the final result, actually. So the video actually, hopefully by the time this episode is out, is going to be on our website, on Twitter and on the YouTube channel. Which is going to have a, a nice revival because there's been nothing around on the YouTube channel since about 2012. <laughs> and that was, what was the last episode? Um, I think it was Lofar, wasn't it? Lofar. Okay. So it was the uh, the tour to Lofar. Yeah. Yeah. So that'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, so the video is going to form an integral part of the stand from Manchester and the other universities, which is going to be at this year's Royal Society Summer Exhibition. That's going to be running this summer in London between the 4th and the 10th of July. I think full details of that are going to be on the website if you're able to check that out. There's going to be a whole bunch of other exhibitions and stands there on things like antimatter, space junk, lasers, new robotic technologies and loads of really, really cool stuff. If you're able to get down there, actually, Joe Zunz will be down there with his brand new Oculus Rift. He showed me that last week and you're able to basically see the cosmic microwave background in 3D. It's really, really cool. And you can see it in different wavelengths as well. You can, yeah. Yeah. You can see different components. You can see galaxy foregrounds. You can see synchrotron. You can see loads of really, really cool stuff. It's really cool. It's the first time I've tried an Oculus Rift as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's an experience. I would definitely recommend it. If you show it to a 10-year-old kid who's kind of vaguely interested in science, they'll be hooked. 100% I guarantee it. And moving on to something a little bit further from home and a little bit later in the universe than the cosmic microwave background, my odd end is about carbon stars. When you think about life, alien life and life on Earth, actually, what are the uh, essential ingredients that people always list? Do you know? Carbon? Yeah, um, I shouldn't have given it away. Yeah, carbon <laughs> so carbon is life. the one. Uh, I was uh, hoping you'd go for things like water and temperature so then I could go carbon. <laughs> um, but all life on Earth is carbon based. We're about 19% based on carbon. We've also got a lot of water in us. But the Earth itself is only 0.03% carbon. Oh, really? Yeah, well, cool. it's covered in water, 71%. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 95% of known rocks are actually silica-based, so that's silicon dioxide. So there's not that much carbon that makes up the Earth. But because it's so essential to life... People have been doing some research at the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre and exploring the possibility that different planets could form and potentially host life. And these planets would be purely carbon-based planets. So these orbit around these stars, which they call KEMP stars, which stands for carbon-enriched metal-poor stars, which would be relics of the very early universe. Because if you've got no metal, then that means that they're from an earlier generation, an earlier population of stars before the supernovas have produced the metal that goes on to form stars later in the universe. Oh, okay, sweet. So the planets around these stars would have lots of carbon in them. Oh, that's the that's the theory anyway. And so you would see planets basically compromised of things like graphite, carbides, and diamonds as well. This is the, the news headline. Life on diamond planets. 
So the team's actual paper was mainly focused on the potential for formation of planets around these stars. Things like their possible orbits, which could be anything between like a century long or three weeks, and uh, how far and how close they are away from the star, how close they are to the stars. And yeah, they've, they've pretty much come to the conclusion that it's very possible that these carbon-based planets exist. And so they mentioned that there are possibilities for implications for the development of early life, because obviously we still don't know where life comes from. If it's carbon-based, then maybe it could have come from these planets. Or maybe there could be very strange, or maybe not so strange if it's carbon-based, life on carbon planets. So this is where the media have jumped on the life part, as that's the, the most exciting thing. But actually, we haven't seen any of these planets. And so one of the, the things in their paper is actually talking about discussing ways to detect them. So there are, we know of Kemp stars, but we haven't seen any transiting planets around them. So they, they discuss ways to see the transits of them. And they put forward ideas for observation surveys in order to look for these particular types of star. You were saying before about how these planets and these stars kind of, they exist before everything gets enriched with metals. Mm. So presumably they'd also have to be quite far away. Yeah. Because you're looking at before the universe has largely been enriched with metals. There aren't many of these right. left. They Which, are, yeah. yeah, they're primordial, so I guess. So that would make them pretty hard to find, right? Because mm. you've got to spot something that's pretty distant and planets are pretty hard to see anyway. I'm guessing right? pretty faint as they're well. pretty faint, yeah. yeah. So you're looking for transits of stuff that's... Mm. You know. And so I guess this is one of the reasons that we haven't seen any planets around these mm. yet, because there are probably not very many of them left and it's probably quite hard to see any sort of transiting signal from them. Mm. Sure. Yeah, that should be something that's relatively easy to predict as well, actually, like how likely you are to see them, or at least because if you have an idea about when the universe started to become enriched on reasonable scales, then you have an idea of when, like what kind of time period you need to look back before, mm. which gives you a distance of an idea of how far away you need to look. Is there a, yeah. is there a graph of... Metallicity over time. Metallicity over time, yeah, exactly. Um, I would have thought there are people trying to do that. Whether or not they've succeeded mm. in doing that is debatable. <laughs> yeah. But because if you're studying things like supernovae and stuff like that, then that's it's a very relevant thing to study. Yeah, mm. definitely. And obviously there are all sorts of important things uh, that also influence life. As I mentioned before, the distance from the planet to the star and that mm. sort of thing. And um, it's not just as simple as these planets form in their protostellar disks and then they stay where they are. Different planets around different stars can cause planets to move further and further away they can cause them to in spiral and so it's all really complicated but it's just um it's one of those really exciting things i think i wonder what a creature looking would look like living on and all they call them tar black planets and they have nice pictures in all the articles about <laughs> like sticks of diamonds sticking out of the ground instead of trees and that sort of thing so it's all very sci-fi but i don't know what a creature would look like on one of those or even what you call it I don't know. It's a really interesting idea, I think, actually, about whether, you know, this other form of life would maybe study physics or maybe have an idea about the universe and have any interest of anything outside of its own planet, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine it'd be quite primitive. Yeah. Well, it would be quite primitive. It would be one of the first things that would have formed if it was forming this early. No, I wonder if you need all these metals to form before you can get complex life. Yeah. That, that, and how much water is on these planets as well? Yeah. Do you need water? If it's carbon-based, does it still need water? Yeah. These are all these unanswered questions. But uh, it's exciting that we're moving into the stage where we're detecting enough planets and we're detecting enough planets in sort of different environments to Earth mm. where we can start thinking about what is it that life needs and what is it that it might not need as mm -hmm. well. So, yeah, it's exciting stuff. So for our final odd and end, I thought I'd mention the new discovery from LIGO. So that's the gravitational wave detector that provided the first evidence of gravitational waves last year. They've just announced the second discovery. So the event happened on Boxing Day of 2015. 
and they think it was a merger between two black holes, so a 14 solar mass and an 8 solar mass black hole. So we're getting down to really quite quite small black holes here. And despite this being two smaller black holes merging, they actually got a much better signal from it. So I think for the first discovery, they only had a signal lasting something like one fifth of a second, whereas this time they had a whole second. So they're able to get much, much better constraints on general relativity. And I think it's kind of just the sign of the good things to come because we're going to hopefully start seeing lots more of these Mm, it's Uh, nice that we have this one mm -hmm. so quickly off the back of the first one as well yeah exactly and i guess this will start giving some ideas about what the frequency of these types of events are because Mm. at the moment i think that's a bit of a mystery to be quite honest and i see like papers kind of every couple of days or every (laughs) couple of weeks of people going well if the frequency is this then we can do all of this science but so it'll actually be good to start getting some constraints on that yeah, definitely. I like the idea as well that with the first LIGO announcement, it kind of opened up this whole new field of mm-hmm. observational astrophysics that you can now start looking for these things. And it's kind of, it's just mm. opened up an entirely new sort of realm of discovery. And actually, it's not just us who can start looking for them because LIGO have released a Zooniverse project searching for gravitational waves. Awesome. So if you, um, yeah, I had a look at it yesterday, mm. actually. So if you have a look at Zooniverse and you look for gravitational waves, we'll link this in the show notes, I guess. You can look at graphs and they show different images and these images correspond to different things, different types of interference and also what you should be looking for ah. as a gravitational wave. So you can, so. You can look for the chirp. Mm, you can. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting stuff. And if you actually want to help out a little bit, well, a little bit more passively, I guess, you can also help out with Einstein at home. So they have this kind of distributed software where they can use computers all over the world to search for their data for gravitational waves. But what I found really cool is there's actually apps for you to do this on your phone now. So I have um, one called HTC Power to Give, another one called Boink. And I just run them when I charge my phone overnight because I charge my phone every night because I use it every day. Oh, and this is what they did for SETI, wasn't it? Yeah, and they do the same yeah, for SETI. Yeah, yeah. And there's loads for kind of like protein folding projects and stuff as well. But I think it's a great way to get involved with the gravitational wave discovery. And I think there's also some stuff for um, pulsars as well, finding pulsars with Arecibo. There might possibly be. Yeah, so you can have a look at that as well. Cool. And now someone who will also be heard but not seen. Here's Joe Zuntz with Ask an Astronomer. So today we're doing Ask an Astronomer with Dr Joe Zuntz from the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics at the University of Manchester. Joe's going to be answering three questions for us today. The first one is from Paul Wagstaff. Why is inflation necessary to explain isotropy? To my untutored mind, a point universe similar in all respects should remain so regardless of the speed of expansion. So Paul's absolutely right that a perfectly isotropic and homogeneous universe, that means one that's the same in every direction and the same no matter where you are, so totally uniform, would stay like that permanently, so it would, it would remain uniform. But it's also true that if you balance a pencil perfectly vertically on its tip, then it could balance there permanently, and it's a very similar situation. It's kind of technically true, but the system's very unstable. Even a tiny knock to the pencil or a tiny perturbation to that universe makes it quickly spiral out of control. Um, in the pencil's case, that means the pencil falls over. And in the case of the universe, that means that a region with even a tiny bit more matter than elsewhere starts to pull more matter onto it by gravity, and then it grows and gets bigger, so it's got more gravity, and and, and the process kind of spirals, and and it quickly becomes non-isotropic. An isotropic and homogeneous universe is an unstable one. Given that the universe moves away from isotropy very quickly, and that we can see that just after the Big Bang at the microwave background, just 300,000 years later, uh, the universe was already very, very isotropic indeed, one part in 10 to the 5 and very uniform across a wide area. So the the CMB, the microwave background, is the same across the whole sky. An area that wide shouldn't have been in causal contact, so it shouldn't have been able to synchronise its temperature across the whole sky. 
So the reason inflation is a compelling idea is it solves both these problems. It takes a very small area, which has a you know one one temperature and, and is locally fairly fairly uniform, and blows it up until it's the size of the whole universe. So it's not surprising anymore, or it, or it explains very well why the whole universe is is uniform and synchronized across its whole area in temperature. Thank you, Joe. Our next question is from Matthew Wilday. We all know about time dilation, understand the principle, and even get the equation, but my question is this. If we managed to build a spacecraft capable of going to 98% of the speed of light, what would the pilot see if we pointed them at a star 100 light years away? We know the light would take 100 years, but the pilot would get there in less than 100 years in their reference frame, so would they see space shrink? So this certainly is very counterintuitive, absolutely. It's very hard to physically get an idea of what's going on. But in this case, yes, your pilot absolutely would find that the star, the space and everything around them shrank in the direction they were travelling. Um, Lorentz contraction, which is this uh, this phenomenon of relativity, is a very real, literal phenomenon. It's not just metaphorical or about measurement. Possibly the best uh, way or the best source for getting the hang of this and kind of getting an intuitive idea of these things is a book written in 1946 by the great uh, physicist and cosmologist George Gamow. Um, he wrote a book called Mr. Tompkins, um, which is about a man who falls asleep in a physics lecture and dreams he's in a world where the speed of light is 10 miles per hour. So he's cycling down the road and he sees the roads kind of contracting towards him and he, you know, he experiences time dilation. He meets a man who's you know, much younger than his own granddaughter, that kind of thing. Um, so it's a really great book, um, very good for getting an intuition and I really recommend it. There is one thing in Mr. Tompkins that isn't quite accurate anymore. So it was written in 46 before we knew a lot of these things. Um, and that's the question of what your pilot would literally see with their eyes. So what would things actually physically look like? And it turns out that's a very complicated question in relativity. Um, and it's because the light rays coming towards you undergo some very strange and surprising effects at relativistic speeds. So their wavelength can change, uh, so their colour can change, and the angle they seem to be coming from can bend towards the direction of travel as well. So you start seeing things on the edge of your vision looking darker or away from the way you're going start to look darker. If you want a very realistic experience of this relativity, including all these different effects and what you actually see, then I recommend a simulation slash video game made by MIT uh, called A Slower Speed of Light. So if you Google that, you can find downloads of A Slower Speed of Light. It's a game where you run around collecting little tokens, but each one you collect slows down the speed of light a little bit more. Um, so you really start to see, as, as the speed of light comes to about walking pace, all these strange effects coming into play. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Our final question is from Christoph Krahenbühl. He says, Are the Gaia measurements affected by gravitational waves, and how can that be compensated for accurately? So just for some background, uh, Gaia is a European space agency space telescope that launched in 2003, whose job is to make the most accurate map of the Milky Way that's ever been created. So in particular, it will measure the positions of a huge number of stars in the Milky Way to 25 micro arc second accuracy. So that's seven billionths of one degree in, in angular or location accuracy. And then using parallax, so the apparent movement of the stars as the Earth goes around the sun, it will get amazing measurements of the distances to many of those stars in the Milky Way as well. And we're really looking forward to the data being released later this year. Now, that's absolutely incredible um, measurement achievement, and you know, it's going to be great. So it's very reasonable to ask if gravitational waves uh, of the kind detected by the, the LIGO experiment this year can disrupt that measurement. You know, they distort space and time, so could they distort these measurements? And the answer is no, not even a little tiny bit. Gaia's accuracy is like measuring the width of a human hair a thousand kilometres away, and that's astounding. But seeing a gravitational wave is like measuring the same human hair a light year away. So it's more than a billion times too small to affect something like Gaia. Um, amazing though it is. So even though Gaia was an amazing measurement, the, the precision they had to get to with the LIGO detectors was, was absolutely stunning. And that's, that's one of the reasons it's, uh, it's so astoundingly impressive and why no one is taking bets on the next physics Nobel Prize anymore. Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks for that, Joe. And now on to the feedback this month. 
So we've had a few emails, and um, the first one's from James, and they said, Hello Jodcast, just adding my name to the list of hopefully growing list of happy Jodcastians? Jodcastonians? Jodders? I'll go with listeners, as per your <laughs> June 2016 podcast. I've been listening for as long as I can remember. I'm quite old, 49 and a half. That's debatable whether or not that's old. <laughs> um, so remembering is now not one of my strong points. Anywho, happy podcasting from sunny Sussex, though I'm from Cheshire originally, so no strangers to Jodrell Bank. Keep up the good work and jod on. Oh, awesome. It's nice to hear that we grab new listeners as well. We've also had some constructive criticism from various places, email and Facebook, based on the um, the audio quality of the Jodcast at the minute. And so one of the things that we're going to be working on over the, uh, over the coming episodes is making sure that we are keeping the sound levels consistent in between all of the segments, because that has been a problem for some people. So we're working on it. Thanks for all the feedback on that. And if you have any more advice for us, that'd be really helpful as well. One of the guys on Facebook, Daniel Chu Owen, actually sent us some particular advice. He's done some sound editing before. Um, he sent us some advice on how to fix the problem. So we will be incorporating that into this coming episode and we'll see how it sounds. And then again on Facebook, Mark Shaw has uh, sent us a little message and he's found a he's found a pretty cool thing, actually. It's on the website of the Michael Brown, Dr. Michael Brown, a.k.a. Planet Killer, <laughs> Pluto Killer and Ares Discoverer. And he has a post where he's spent a summer trying to build a radio telescope of his own That's using so cool. a... Yeah, using a commandeered TV satellite dish, <laughs> which uh, it looks really interesting, actually. It's something if I had a satellite dish, I, m- I might give it a go myself. Yeah. It d- doesn't, look, doesn't look that hard. And he's been using it to look at the sun and try and detect radio waves with it, which is really cool because I don't hear very much about amateur radio astronomy. Even though I think like radio astronomy definitely started off in people's back gardens. Yeah. It's very much like people tried to build a telescope in their back garden yeah. um, oh. and, and just got on with it. So I mean, the quite... very simplest radio telescopes are mm-hmm. literally antennas, aren't they? Yeah. And uh, that's uh, we had a we had an interesting talk about the history of Jodrell Bank a few days ago, and we saw some pictures of Lovell setting up a Jodrell Bank for the very first time with lots of chicken wire. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's um, so it can be done at home. And if lots of people did it, maybe you could put together an interferometer of your own. Um, yeah. well, I don't know how useful that would be. <laughs> Well, I mean, Jodrell Bank itself started off as the university allotment, didn't it? Mm. I think it was the botanical mm. department and they sort of donated a little patch of grass to Bernard Lovell and it sort of grew from there. So. Yeah, they said he could have a certain amount of time on there and then they forgot he was there. <laughs> and so he got enough results by the time they checked up on him to say, yeah, you can carry on. It's really <laughs> interesting. So yeah, thanks for that, Mark. Um, we'll put that in the show notes as well. If any of the listeners want to give that a go and share the results, that'd be really cool. Cool. So we have a message from Daniel Chewowen, also on Facebook saying, Hi Jodcast, love the show, and listen from Kenya every month. Particularly enjoyed this month's interview with Toa Waka, so much so that I selected a snippet and attached some footage of the ISS after a friend asked how to reply when someone asks, how do we know the Earth is not flat? I hope you don't mind. It's the top post here, and he's given a link which we'll put in the show notes as well. No, we definitely don't mind. That's really cool. It's uh, really cool when people reuse our stuff. It's partly why we do it. It's nice to hear that it will be getting out to more people. And it's a really great answer to that question, because I think you quite often get these questions from people and whilst you know the answers, you kind of don't even know where to start in answering (laughs) it. So it's a Mm. But this was really common sense, wasn't it? So, yeah. And this actually was in the news quite recently, because I think B.O.B. on Twitter was posting a lot of stuff about the Earth being flat and... You know, not really being sure why we believe what we believe. And it's uh, it's an interesting question, I suppose. Yeah, so definitely take a look at that. And thanks for all the retweets and follows on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. And YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. And yeah, that's going to have something new on it soon. 
and Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. All that's left is the thanks. So thank you very much to Professor James Dunlop for the interview. The editors were Damien Trin, James Bamber, George Bendo and Charlie Walker. And the producer was George Bendo. And so until next time, Jod on. on.